are in the second week of our series uh, called Heaven and Hell. And last week, what we did is uh, we looked at five assumptions of heaven and hell or the afterlife. And, and we, the, the probably just weren't exactly true. Uh, and a lot of information, a lot of our thinking, a lot of our perspective about the afterlife, about heaven and hell, uh, doesn't come necessarily from the Bible itself, but comes uh, a lot through popular culture, uh, through different forms of media uh, that we see. And so we're, we're spending some time this fall uh, to really look at some assumptions that maybe we've had uh, about heaven and hell and see if they're really biblical. Uh, so we did five assumptions. Uh, we we uh, compared those assumptions with five truths last week. And uh, chances are that last week raised more questions than it answered. Uh, and, and so what I want to do over the course of the next four weeks is begin to address some of those questions. Uh, now you'll notice that, that I didn't say answer those. We're not, we're not going to answer your questions definitively, but we're going to address them, talk about them, uh, so that you can begin to make an educated decision about what, what are some of your thoughts and perspectives uh, about issues of heaven and hell. And so that's, that's kind of what we're, what we're up to. Uh, also, you'll notice that uh, in this morning's bulletin, uh, you had an insert, and uh, the insert was titled, Pastor Andy's Reading List. And uh, just so you didn't come away from last week thinking this guy is a kook and he makes all this stuff up, uh, I wanted you to know that I do have a resource list that I'm working with. This is a partial list. Uh, but that maybe gives you, if you want to go on and do some of your own reading, those are great books to start uh, in terms of looking at these important subjects of heaven and hell. Uh, I, I do want to say this about the reading list. Uh, number one is... It's not exhaustive. In other words, there are some other resources uh, that I'm picking up on and looking at. Uh, But the other thing is these are not wholesale endorsements for these books either. Uh, These are just books that I have been reading in preparation for this series. And so uh, you might see a book on there uh, or a couple maybe that you've heard about and, and maybe have been surrounded with a lot of controversy. It can be said for all of these books Uh, that there's a lot that the authors have to say that I like, and then there are some that I don't like, uh, that I don't agree with. And so uh, these are not wholesale endorsements for these books, uh, but rather suggestions if you want to go on and do some of your own reading. So is that a a good enough disclaimer? Okay. (laughs) So I hope that's helpful to you. Uh, Today what I want to do then in the second week of this series is I want to look at, uh, I want to look at heaven. And I want to look at the source of our hope as Christians. Uh, Because we know that as as people of God, if you're here today and you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, uh, that your ultimate hope is the hope of heaven. What I want to... What I want to look at, though, is, is maybe, as we began to pick up on last week, is that maybe the hope of heaven has maybe been uh, just a little bit misinformed, a little bit misguided based on uh, assumptions of our culture. But the, but the truth is that the Christian faith is, is a life of tremendous hope. It is hope that, that one day the world will be made right. It is hope that, that one day the pain that we go through in life because you, you know that when you place your faith in Christ, Jesus' promise is never to keep us from pain 
or heartache or trouble. Uh, but Jesus' promise is to walk with us through the pain and through the heartache and the trouble. And so the hope of the Christian life is that the pain that we experience is not in vain, but, but rather that there one day will be a world where pain and evil no longer exist. And so the life of the Christian is a life of tremendous hope. And when we talk about heaven, what we're really talking about is the way that the world will one day be, right? I mean, if we're talking about a future hope, we're, we're talking about heaven, our ultimate hope as Christians, what we're really talking about is we're trying to find some understanding, we're trying to gain some perspective on on what will one day be? What is the reality that we have to look forward to? We're, we're talking about heaven. That any discussion about heaven is really a discussion about the world as it one day will be and our ultimate hope. And in order to understand the world as it one day will be or is meant to be, uh, then we first must, uh, must understand the world as it is. And if we're going to understand the world as it is, we must start with creation. So to talk about the end, I want to start at the very beginning. You good? Some of you are like, I was hoping he'd start like in the middle. Or, or like, just like if we're talking about the end, let's just talk about the end. But for some reason, Pastor Andy always has to start at the beginning. So let's talk about creation. Uh, creation. The Bible begins, the very first words of this book, this story, are the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. So first of all, the Bible assumes the existence of God. In other words, if you are looking to this book to prove the existence of God, it will be helpful in seeing the activity of God. But the Bible from the very beginning assumes the existence of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this is important because... It teaches us this important truth that God stands outside of creation. And this is widely misunderstood in the culture in which we live because a lot of people today like to say that creation uh, is, is contained within God or, or that God is contained within creation. Are you with me? Does that make sense? A lot of people like to say that when we look at creation, we are in fact looking at God himself. A lot of people like to say that creation is, is enfolded within the being of God or, or, or the vice versa. But, but the very first words of the Bible tell us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is to say that God is outside of creation. He stands in a particular relationship with creation itself. And that is, there is the creation and then there is the creator. And what we ultimately learn from this and why this is important, and I thought we were talking about heaven today, right? Why this is ultimately important is this, that creation itself is an act of love and the affirmation of the goodness of the other. In other words, God, who exists perfectly within himself and is in perfect, a perfect love relationship within the members of the Trinity, choose, chooses to share that love and pour that love out for the good of something and someone else. Are you with me? So you might ask the question, well, if, if creation was going to run all amok, 
and we were going to be lost in sin, why in the world would God chosen, why would he have chosen to create in the first place? And it is, it is ultimately because of this, that creation itself is a sign of the love of God where he affirms the goodness of the other. He pours out his glory and his goodness for the benefit of the other. And so creation, God is not within creation. Creation is not God, but creation is meant to reflect his glory. Are you with me? We got real deep, real fast, okay? So that's just, that's just where we're going. We're going to stay there too. I'm going to hold you underwater and not let you breathe until the last amen, okay? So take a deep breath, and then that's where we're headed today, all right? And, it's, it's, and, it's, and when you finally get to gasp for breath, for air, you all are going to be like, man, that was good, okay? So that's, that's where we're headed. Now, the crown of creation, human beings, we were designed to reflect God throughout all of creation through stewardship and worship. You might ask the question, well, why in the world am I here? Why in the world am I here? God created you to reflect his glory to the world and the people around you through worship and through stewardship. Stewardship is a way of saying that we want to manage all that God has given us and we want to manage it well. And so God has given us time and God has given us resource and God has given us uh, a a surrounding, the, the nature, the creation itself. And so when we were meant to reflect the glory of God through worship, which is a vertical relationship, right? And then through stewardship, which is a horizontal relationship. That's why you were made. So it's not totally about you. It's really about him. Okay? So creation is good, and the crown of creation is meant us. We're meant to reflect God's glory to the world through worship and stewardship. Now, let me ask you the question. As you read the Bible and as you live your own life, do we do a very good job of this? Some of you are like, I think I do. I I mean, I'm pretty good, you know. We don't. We don't do a very good job of this. In in fact, we have failed to do this. And instead of of reflecting God, the creator, to all of creation, including one another, because all of us are, are part of the creation story in Genesis, that we're meant to reflect God to one another, instead of, instead of, Worshiping the creator alone, what happens is we have become idolatrous. And we have instead worshipped and directed our worship toward creation rather than the creator. Now, some of you are like, oh, that's just, you know, hyper-environmentalism. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, and idolatrous, idolatry in asking, in, in worshiping creation rather than the creator is not just hyper-environmentalism. It, it, it plays out in all kinds of ways. That any time that you ask something in the created wor- world, which is like pretty much everything, okay? Anytime that you ask that thing, that person, that place, to do only what God can do, it is idolatry. Okay? 
And so rather than directing our worship perfectly toward the creator, we have been idolatrous and asked and and directed our worship toward creation instead. And we've called upon anything in the created order to be our God and to do something it cannot do. And the, the result of that, the result of that sin is that the entire world has gone completely out of joint, gone completely amok, right? If you want to know why we're in the mess that we're in as a world and as a culture, it's because of sin. And all the different ways that sin plays itself out in our lives and in our world. Because we, we sin against each other. We sin against ourselves. We, we, we sin in all these ways. And it all boils down to the fact that there's some sort of idolatry. There's some sort of I am worshiping something. I am trusting something or someone other than the true creator. Who is the only one who can meet my need. Who is the only one who has the resource. Who is the only one that can bring me true fulfillment, who is the only one that can do all of these things for my life. But instead, for fulfillment, I look over here. To meet my need, I look over here. All of these things, God can work through those things, but our trust has to be in him. And so many times we practice idolatry by by placing our trust and our hope in something other than the creator God. We're going somewhere, I promise. And here's what happens. God, as the source of all life, the creator... And so he is the source of all life. But when we worship something that does not have life in and of itself, in other words, when we worship something other than God, when we place our trust in something other than God, when we place our hope in something other than God, that thing, that other person, that other place has no life in and of itself. It was given life by the creator. Therefore, if we direct our worship toward that, it surely leads to death. Are you with me now? Which is why any time that we misdirect our our worship, any time that we practice idolatry, it maybe meets our need for a moment, it maybe seems fulfilling for a second, for a season, but ultimately it leaves us empty because we are looking to something to bring us life that has no life of its own but was given life and so if you want life and not just like not just like heaven eternal kind of life but if you want life here now we must direct our worship toward the giver of life and not practice idolatry and I would say that this is a lifelong journey and that you will not live it out perfectly, right? Because some of you are going to leave here today and you're like, oh man, I'm not going to practice idolatry. I'm not going to trust in that paycheck, you know? I'm going to place my trust in God and I'm not going to look to that other person for hope and I'm not, or fulfillment or all this thing. I'm not going to look at this relationship. I'm not going to, that's idolatry. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And then you're going to do that and you're going to feel guilty, right? And so what we need to realize is that it's a lifelong journey and you won't live it out perfectly, but we need this perspective. And so, uh, and so it leads to death. If we worship something that does not have life in and of itself, of course it leads to death. But not just a bodily death, but a spiritual death as well. And so the point that I want to say is that we are, creation is called good. We're meant to reflect his glory. We haven't done that because of idolatry. Therefore, we are a broken people. We are a broken people. 
You may be a saint today, and you have followed the Lord for decades. You are a broken people. You may be here, and, and, and you could say to yourself, I am the chief of all sinners. I am completely irreligious. You are a broken people, and everywhere in between. We're all on common ground here today. We are all broken and in need of the goodness of the grace of God and his mercy in our lives. And whether that brokenness in your life leads to violence, whether that brokenness leads to addiction or greed or selfishness or any of the other ways that brokenness and sin plays itself out in our lives, we are all a broken people. Regardless of your vice, we all are in need of redemption. And in fact, the Bible says, and we'll look at this a little bit later on, but the Bible says that creation itself is in need of redemption. That is to say that the Bible makes a very clear distinction between the rest of the created order and us, the crown of the created order. That, that, we, are, that we are the pinnacle of God's creative work. And so it makes that difference. But then over and over and over again, it says what is true of us, what God wants to do in us, he also wants to do in the entire world. And then sometimes it flips it around and it says this is true of creation, creation itself and what God wants to do. And then because we're part of the created order, this is also what God wants to do in us. In other words, there's a, a difference and yet a, a similarity between all of the created order and us ourselves. Are you with me still? Okay, good. And so if heaven is where everything is made right, then heaven is where the earth and ourselves are fully redeemed. Creation is called good. The pinnacle of creation, human beings are made to reflect God's glory through worship and stewardship. We haven't done a very good job because we tend to be idolatrous. Therefore, we're a broken people in need of redemption. And redemption is kind of a big fancy word, isn't it? That's like, that's like you only hear that word at church. And the only one that says it in church is the preacher. I mean, you, you can think about like, when was the last time you used the word redemption in like a normal sentence at work? I'll tell you what, this meeting needs redemption. Right? This class needs to be redeemed. Right, students? I mean, some of you are like, you're in a, in a class and you're like, this class needs redemption. You know? We don't say that. It's a word that we have only for church and it's reserved for the preacher. So what does it mean? Redemption is not, as some would say, making things a little bit better. Right? Some people would be like, redemption is just sort of a, a, a gradual self-improvement. And so if God wants to redeem the world, if God wants to redeem me, then I just need to be on the road to self-improvement. I just need to be a little bit better than I was yesterday, and then, then that's redemption, and I'm good. If I just keep on that road, I'll be a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, then, then, then somewhere I'll, I'll, I'll be redeemed, Right? And I could say that I'm redeemed now, but I'm not yet fully redeemed and, and all these kinds of things. And, and, and so redemption, though, is not just being a little bit better. And, and the problem is, is that sometimes we try to earn our salvation or we try to work for our redemption by doing precisely that. Lots of moral effort. If I can just keep being a little bit better, that's not redemption. But nor is redemption taking souls or spirits out of a physical world and into a spiritual one. And the church has understood redemption in both of these ways. 
In one, in one way, it's just like just continual self-improvement. You know, just, do, just don't be as bad as you were yesterday, and, and like God is good with that. The other side is that like everything is bad. You know, like this world is bad. You're terrible. You'll always be a horrible sinner. Shame on you. Oh, yuck, muck, terrible. You know, like, like you've heard preachers like that, you know. And then, and then it's like the goal in redemption is framed as sort of having your, your, your spirit or your soul beamed up to another place and then you're redeemed, right? Redemption isn't that. It's not making, it's not like continual self-improvement or making things a little better, nor is it taking souls or spirits out of a physical world into a spiritual one. Redemption is this. Redemption is the renewing of creation after dealing with the evil that distorts and defaces it. If, if we talk about redemption, if we talk about being redeemed, we're, we're talking about creation being made new after God deals with the evil that distorts it. Paul talks about this when he says that, that right now we look at the world and it's, it's veiled. We, we can't see it fully. And that's because it's distorted by evil. And he talks about that the, the, the hope that we have as Christians, is that one day the veil will be removed and that we'll see each other and the world and creation as it was meant to be unveiled. It'll be unveiled, no longer distorted by evil uh, that is all around. And so uh, redemption then is the renewing of creation after dealing with the evil that distorts and defaces it. Okay. Some of you didn't know that this series was going to be like seminary, right? But it's all good. It's all good. We all, I have a strong philosophy as a pastor. We all need a little bit of seminary. I got one amen. Thank you for that. I thought for sure that like, people would just stand up and leave when I said that. Uh, people were like, oh, sorry about that. Do I have to pay for it? No, this is free. This is free. So, so, so once we get an idea of redemption then, I want to talk about two images of redemption. Two images of redemption. This is where we're going to really get in uh, to talking about heaven. Okay? Two images of redemption. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse 18. I want to read through verse 25. And this is the first image that the Bible gives us. There are lots of images, by the way, that the Bible gives us, sort of word pictures that the Bible gives us for the the truth and reality of redemption and what that looks like and how it plays out in our life and in the world. Uh, I want to look at two today. Uh, The first is from Romans chapter 8, and it's the image of rebirth, the image of rebirth. Uh, So Romans chapter 8, start with verse 18 and uh, through 25. Uh, You can follow along with me as I read. Paul says this, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Christians in Rome. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. 
in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. But not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in, or we could say into, for into this hope you were saved, or we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now this this passage of scripture is absolutely packed. And I want to try to cover it in just a few minutes. But primarily, Paul gives us a, a word picture for what God desires to do in the world. Because he talks about, first of all, what God wants to do in creation itself, right? And I said a lot of times Paul or, or the Bible says, here's what God wants to do in you. And then therefore, here's what God wants to do in the rest of the world. But here's one of those passages where Paul actually begins by saying, here's what God wants to do for creation itself. The world around you. The, 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 the physical dirt earth around us here's what god wants to do and then he says in light of that here's what god wants to do in you and he gives us a a word picture to describe that and it is the word picture of birth or rebirth the pains of childbirth you see for several years the hope of christianity has been thought to be the hope of evacuation that if we could just get out of here and go somewhere else the fundamental foundational base of any theology of heaven is that heaven is somewhere else it's not here this place is falling apart this place is going to hell in a handbasket some people say i mean this place is run all amok That has been the foundational claim of heaven for what seems to us is a very long time, but in terms of Christian history and Christian thought is only in the last 100 to 200 years that people have thought about heaven being somewhere completely else and and somewhere like like spirits going to be disembodied in in this purely spiritual heaven. To us, that seems... Orthodox, foundational, unquestionable, all of these kinds of things. But if you look at the history of Christian thought, these thoughts are only about 100 years old to 200. And so, for a long time, the hope of Christianity has been the hope of evacuation. Go from here to somewhere else. And the foundational claim of Christianity has been that we need to get right with God so that one day we can be taken somewhere else to live with God for eternity. However, Paul in this letter to the Romans does not say and does not lay out a hope for Christians to go somewhere else. But rather he says, instead of there is something brand new coming right here. And he uses this picture of new birth. And he says the creation itself is groaning and it's, and it's waiting in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. That is for when, when, when God will sort everything out in judgment. When the sons of God are revealed and those who have placed their faith in him, when they are revealed, then creation itself knows and is waiting and anticipating for its renewal as well. And so Paul says, here's what God wants to do in the world. God wants to take this world, this creation, and make it brand new. And also for us, 
he wants to do the same thing for we eagerly await the adoption, our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. What, the, what Paul paints in Romans, the, 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 the theological uh, super hit of the Bible, right? Like, like, like the number one single for theology in Romans is not Paul saying, hey, guess what? You get wings and a halo and a harp and a cloud car. Awesome. Paul says, no, 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 no. I made that part up. But Paul says, God has a very particular plan for what he wants to do with what this creation that he called good in Genesis, but was broken and run amok because of our idolatry. God has a plan of salvation that has in mind not just individual souls up to an individual heaven, but God wants to renew this earth, and along with it, he wants to redeem us and our bodies as well. Heaven is a deeply physical place. And our ultimate hope as Christians is that one day this place, this world, will be made brand new. And right now what we see through a veil, because it's distorted by evil, will one day, as God defeats evil once and for all, will be unveiled. That's the good news. That's the foundation of our hope. And I said last week, one of the assumptions was, we can't have any idea what heaven is like, but we just got to be excited for it. And I said, how can you be excited for something that you don't have any clue what it is? And so a lot of times, I mean, I've, I've felt this myself. I've talked to Christians that have felt it. Man, I know I'm supposed to be excited about heaven, but I can't get there. I, I just need to be more spiritual because, because honestly, like, white robe, up in the sky, soul living just doesn't sound very good to me because I like the garden. I like it when the dirt gets under my fingernails. And I like it when, when, I, when, when, I, when I get a green line around my shoes from mowing the lawn, you know? And if I can't get a green line around my shoes in heaven, then I don't want to go. And I'm like, first of all, I know the name of a good counselor. Second of all, no, I'm like, but like, but like people, listen, I've talked to people, I've been there myself. How am I supposed to hope for a disembodied existence where I have to give up all the things that I know and love about this place in favor of something completely unfamiliar? This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says what you know and love about this place that is good and God-honoring right now is veiled. It's veiled. And what God intends is to unveil and allow the goodness and glory of creation to fully reflect and reveal his glory. And I hope that, I hope that that inspires you with hope. Because... Because if we think of heaven as this place up in the sky that's disembodied and, and it's just spirits and souls, this is a very static environment, right? Like heaven where nothing ever changes. <laughs> and you sing the same song over and over again. No. Would the good, creative God of the universe 
really have in mind for us for all eternity to live in a static environment that nothing ever changes or grows or is pruned or planted or mended or ordered. You see, God's world is dynamic. God's good world, heaven, this place renewed, our ultimate hope is a place of dynamic participation with God in the, in the order of creation. And so when you work, every type of work and art is an ordering of creation. It's taking this thing that is, is in chaos and it's ordering it, right? It's, it's taking pieces of wood and making furniture. It, it, it's taking words and writing a poem. It's always ordering creation and putting it together. And when we do this to the glory of God, we are reflecting his glory to the world. We are, we are demonstrating our uh, intended purpose. And so heaven is not somewhere where we just finally give all that up. Art? Nope. No need for it in heaven. <laughs> because heaven has clouds. No, heaven is where art and work and beauty are fully expressed to fully reveal the glory and the goodness of God, the creator. I mean, that's good news. I'm afraid that for too long, because of our misunderstanding about the afterlife in heaven, we've been trying to conjure up good news, right? God loves you so much that he's going to, strip you of your skin so you can exist as a soul up in the clouds. That's the good news. And, and, the, and the culture largely has said, la, 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 la. We're not listening, right? Because that's not good news. But if we read Scripture, and what Paul says here is that creation itself is in, in birth pains, birthing a new world. And so God's, his point is that God's plan is not evacuation, but redemption for us and the creation itself. And Paul uses the image of rebirth as a way of saying that a brand new world is being born out of the womb of the old one. Now, for, for you ladies that have given birth, you know that this is not a painless process. Okay? And so the scripture does, the Bible does talk a lot about how, you know, when right, right before the Lord comes, there's going to be trouble and, and the world is going to seem even more disjointed. And I promise you, if you have ever attended a birth, you feel like the whole thing is just going to fall apart and everything is going to come unhinged. And then a new little cute baby is born out of that process. And you're like, whoa, new life. Just when I thought everything was just going to run amok, this new life is born. Right? And so Paul gives us that image for the birthing of God's new world out of the old one. All right. So redemption is not the destruction of something else in favor of something brand new. It's the recreation of something, having dealt with the evil that distorts it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Does Paul have in mind that he should say, when you accept faith in Christ, your self as you exist now disappears, is destroyed in a cloud of dust, and then a brand new you appears right in your place. Is this what Paul has in mind? Absolutely not. He says something has happened in you that is so profound 
And because of the work of Jesus, the evil that you've participated in and the distortion that it has brought in your life is made clean by the grace and the death of Jesus. Therefore, Paul can only say, you are a new creation. But he doesn't say that you ceased to exist and then a new one was put in your place. But when it comes to our thinking about heaven and when it talks about new creation and what God plans to do for creation and new creation and God's new world and a new heavens and a new earth and all of this other stuff, we assume in our mind that God has in mind to destroy this place and then replace it with a brand new one. And, and we may be just talking about semantics here, but I think that has, that's really important for how we operate in our Christian lives. If we feel like that God's plan is just ultimately to destroy this place because it's going to hell in a handbasket, then that leads, to, that leads to a fundamental disengagement with the world around us. I mean, who cares? It's going to hell anyway, right? But if we decide and know that God plans to birth a brand new world out of this one, then all of a sudden that leads to a fundamental engagement with what's going on. And we want to participate in God's process of rebirth. Are you with me? Can you breathe? Are we holding you too deep? So I want to say two things that I think I've said implicitly, but I want to make totally explicit. God's plan for all those who have placed their faith in him is bodily resurrection in God's new world. Where you will be bodily resurrected. Have you ever thought about that the Christian plan for your life is resurrection But that's what it says in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 15, over and over and over again in the New Testament. Paul talks about our bodies being redeemed. Our bodies being redeemed. Jesus was resurrected in a physical body that was familiar, but at the same time unfamiliar. It was like the same but different. Like he ate, but didn't have to. He walked, but could appear through walls, right? Like he had a physical body that was fundamentally the same and fundamentally different at the same time. So what is my resurrected body going to be like? I don't know. I just told you everything I know. But over and over and over again, Scripture talks about physical bodies. And so... God's plan is our bodies will be redeemed. In other words, what God did for Jesus at Easter, he will do for all of those who believe in him. Even our physical bodies will be freed from the effects of sin. And then creation will be made new. If by the word heaven we mean our final destination for eternity, then what the Bible talks about is not another world, but this world made new where creation doesn't just point us to the creator, but fully reveals his glory, where there's perfect balance in the created order. And what I'm trying to say to you is that the biblical story starts here in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. And then the biblical story ends here with the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. It doesn't say, and then all of the believers were beamed up to heaven. Every time it talks about the return of Christ, heaven, Christ, God 
whatever is pictured is coming down to earth. And so, explicitly, heaven, you will have a physical body redeemed, and this world will be made new. Ha! Is that good news? Some of you are like, I'll go home and think about it. (laughs) And that's good. If nothing else, I want you to think about it. If nothing else from this series, I want you to think about it. Which leads me to the second image for redemption, which is marriage. So first, the first image is that of rebirth. The second is that of marriage. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. I read from this passage last week. I'll probably read from it next week. I'll probably read from it the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. I like Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, I want to read just the first couple verses. It's really hard for me to stop reading Revelation 21, but I'm going to, I promise you I'm just going to read two verses. Uh, because what we get here uh, is uh, from John uh, and him, his image of the new heaven and new earth uh, in Revelation. And uh, he uses a particular kind of word picture and metaphor for us as well. That of marriage. 21, first couple verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, this does not mean, that again, that God has destroyed and then replaced. This is language for talking about the true nature of redemption. Something being made brand new. And so there's this new thing that has happened. And if this new thing has arrived in all of its fullness, then of course the old order of things is gone and passed away. Okay, but this is not talking about total destruction, something, uh, something else in its place. So, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The metaphor, the word picture that we get in Revelation 21 is that of marriage. I want you to think of heaven and earth as two realms of reality. Two realms of reality. Stick with me here. It's two realms of reality. Earth is the realm of man, and heaven is the realm of God. They both exist in our world right now. There is the realm in which Men and the hearts of men and the sin of men rule and reign. And there is the realm of God where the will and the love of God reign are in, and are in charge. And you will know just by living your life, if you have your eyes open and are looking for this, that sometimes you will see places, environments, circumstances in which the realm of man is completely at work and at play. This is when people are utterly selfish This is when people are in the midst of of, uh, horrible conflict with one another, where their hearts are not softened or feeling compassion for one another. Uh, Let me just say, your workplace. In fact, the water cooler talk around your workplace. And then there are the realm of heaven, the realm of God, where the will of God reigns and is ruling and is taking place and is at play. This is what happens at Renee's Hope where the hungry are fed and the thirsty are given drink and those who are in need are given resource. This also is at the water cooler at work when in the midst 
of utter selfishness and horrible conversation with all kinds of language and all of that, someone says, tell me where you go to church again. What made you become a Christian? And they begin to search. There are two realms of reality, the realm of earth, the realm of man, and then heaven, the realm of God. Are you with me? What we have often thought of is that we have often thought that heaven and earth are completely separate. And I want to illustrate this. We have often thought as the realm of heaven and the realm of man being completely separate. And that they never touch. And, there's, there's the, and, and, and again, we have been told that the goal of the Christian life is to get from earth to heaven. If we could just do that, then, then we've made it. We've been fully redeemed. And we've, we've, we've often understood that Jesus was the one who came from heaven to earth, right, in order to save us and build a bridge so that we can, in fact, go from earth to heaven, this completely separate place. This is the context in which we have always understood the Christian faith, at least in my generation and the ones previous to that. The primary goal of the Christian life is to be rescued from earth to heaven. This is accomplished through Christ who came from heaven to build a road, from, from heaven to build a road to heaven. And this understanding of heaven and earth, they are in competition. One is good, one is bad, one is physical, one is spiritual. It's like they are fundamentally different and never intersect. And that's what we've understood. But in fact, I want to help you think about this in a little different way. That in fact, heaven and earth are not completely separate realms. And what Jesus did is not necessarily build a bridge to get to heaven. But what Jesus did is he brought heaven with him. Huh? That's good. Jesus didn't just build a bridge to heaven. Jesus brought heaven with him and placed it right here on earth and said, you want a little taste of heaven? Watch this. And then he heals somebody. You want a little taste of heaven? Watch this. And then he casts the demons out into pigs and the pigs fall off the cliff. Thousands of them. Huge herd of pigs. You want, to, you want to know what heaven is like? He, he spits in the mud. Because heaven is physical, right? Spits in the mud. Spits in the dirt. Makes mud. Puts it on a guy's eyes. And then the guy sees. See, it, it, it's, not, it's not like this. It's not totally separate. Where, where Jesus is just sort of building the bridge with the ministry of Jesus, heaven and earth are fundamentally intersecting. That there's this, there's this, this part where, where heaven is not yet fully revealed. And there's this part where, where it's like just the realm of man and that's just plain evil. But for the most part, we live right here in the middle where there's all kinds of evidence of the brokenness and sinfulness of man. And yet at the very same time, breaking into that brokenness is all the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the power of God. This is not just sort of like, oh, fluffy, kind things that Jesus did. This is heaven. This is Jesus saying, this is what heaven is like. 
This is what the realm of God looks like. Are you with me? And so Jesus says, if you want to know what heaven looks like, it looks like the hungry being fed, the sick being healed, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing. It's those with power being humbled and those without power being exalted so that all are on equal ground before God, right? You, look, you read the New Testament and the stories of Jesus, and there's this group of people called the Pharisees, and the Pharisees think they're more awesome than anybody else, right? Because they know the law. They have it memorized. They're the spiritual leaders. Look at me. I'm on the platform. Ha, ha, ha. I have the microphone. I'm all, I'm, I'm all that and a little bit more. That's what the Pharisees said, okay? And Jesus is all the time saying, he's all the time rebuking the Pharisees. Why? Because he's humbling them. He's exalting the poor as a way of demonstrating that in the realm of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, all are equal before the cross. And so if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. But if you're prideful, you'll fall. Right? You want to know what heaven's like? There's all sorts of evidence that scripture gives us over and over and over. It's the end of violent oppression. The, you, you find uh, all the time that, that uh, just before Jesus goes to the cross, Peter goes to defend him with a sword. He cuts off one of the guy's ears. And, and Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then he puts the ear back on and heals the guy. What's that a way of saying? That, that if in the realm of heaven, violent oppression has ended. The people wanted a savior that would come in and kick some butt, right? They were under Roman oppression. They wanted a savior, a Messiah to come in. And the role of the Messiah in ancient culture was to come and build an army and defeat the oppressor. That was, what, that was the term Messiah. That's what they meant. That's what they expected. That's what they wanted. And so when they get word from this Messiah of, from Bethlehem, they're like, finally, we've got a, a, a leader of the army who's going to come in and kick some butt. Right? But what Jesus does is he doesn't come in and, 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 and defeat through violent oppression. He defeats through love and self-sacrifice. And then the book of Revelation is all about how it's not about how God is so violent in the end. It's about how we actually, the book of Revelation actually subverts violence. If we read it correctly and in its proper context, it's a way of saying that if you want to be victorious in this life, all you must do is identify with who? The, the slain lamb of God. And so in the realm of God, violent oppression ends. And it's the end of selfish motive and the beginning of motives based on love. And so this heaven... So this is heaven and earth. In the ministry of Jesus, it's heaven and earth unified to some degree. It, it's, it's heaven intersecting earth with the ministry of Jesus. You see how this is different from Jesus just sort of like building a bridge so that we can go from one place to another, but actually Jesus bringing heaven with him? Are you with me on the difference? Okay. I got lots of time still. Some of you are like looking at your clock and wondering like, is this ever going to be over? No, I got lots of time. I got lots of time. And so, in fact, this is what Jesus teaches us to pray. When he taught us, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And, and Jesus goes on to teach them the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.10. It says this, Jesus teaches us to pray the line, your kingdom come, your will be done, realm of heaven, your will be done on earth, as it already is in heaven. Right? The realm of man, 
where the sinful hearts of man rule, the realm of heaven where the way of God rules. The, Jesus teaches us to pray that they will one day be one. That the world as it is, as it is meant to be is that there will be a marriage between these two. And in fact, this is precisely the picture that we get in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 is the marriage of heaven and earth. So that no longer do we understand heaven and earth as being totally separate. Because in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus brought heaven to earth and said, this is what heaven's like. Watch my ministry. Watch my life. This is what heaven looks like. And then Revelation, the end of the book, the end of the story, has the marriage of heaven and earth. For a new Jerusalem was coming down, beautifully dressed as a bride for her husband. That is to say, the heaven and earth are not in competition, but they are actually made for one another. Have you ever thought about that? See, we tend to separate the two because we see earth and the realm of man as being so evil. But God's plan is not just to ditch that and say, oh, never mind, I'll start anew. God's plan is to redeem that because the plan was always for the realm of God and the realm of man to be the same. God desires nothing more than to be with his people. Do you hear me, church? God's deepest desire is to be with his people. And because our deepest desire was not to be with our God, but to replace God with something out of creation, and everything ran amok, God has been on a rescue plan of once again joining the realm of God and the realm of man so that they will one day be united again. This is God's plan. This is our ultimate hope. And we have so dumbed down our theology of heaven that we've lost our true hope. Church, we need to realize, we need to understand what God's true plan is for us. That the realm of God and the realm of man will be one and the same. And and Revelation gives us all kinds of descriptors of that. But it's in fact an affirmation that heaven and hell are not in fact different but made for one another. In the same way that males and females are fundamentally different and yet at the same time made for one another. That's why we get the picture, the metaphor of marriage. God gives us marriage here as a way of pointing us to the reality of what he intends to do in the end. In other words, marriage isn't just like sort of this great idea from God for procreation. It's a, it's a picture, it's a metaphor for what God ultimately wants to do in the world. And so the best marriage, the most loving marriage, the most self-sacrificing, other-loving marriage, the best it can do is point us in the right direction of what God desires to do in the world. And this, my friends, is good news. And they're coming together as cause for celebration, right? We go to weddings and we celebrate and, and, we, and we dance, you know, and we have a party and we do all these fun things because it's a cause for celebration. These, these two people that are fundamentally different have come together and they're now one. It's cause to celebrate. And the same is true for the marriage of heaven and earth. 
And so the hope for the Christian is not the hope of one day getting out of here. It is the assurance, it is the assurance that one day we will be bodily resurrected into God's new world. So how do we live in light of heaven? Well, if this is where the story is headed and what God ultimately wants to do in the world, then we live in light of those realities. In other words, if, if we see in the ministry of Jesus, this is what heaven looks like, then we ought to go about the, the work of practicing the ministry of Jesus, extending the ministry of Jesus in the world. And by doing that, we'll be bringing heaven to earth in the same way that he did. And in fact, when Jesus, uh, before he was ascended, he said, you, in fact, will go on to do even more than I have. And I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to empower you. And so if we want to live in light of heaven, then we don't, like, we don't stock up the cellar with canned goods and wait for the world to end. That's not living in light of heaven. Living in light of heaven is engaging the world with the hope of heaven, as we've described it today. And as the Bible describes it. And so it's, it's justice for the poor. It's food for the hungry. It's compassion instead of competition. It's peace instead of violence. It's all, those are all sort of like outside tangible things that you can see. Like that person is doing that. But it's also all sorts of inward realities of things that happen in our heart. Like delighting in Christ, not accomplishment. Like if it, and this is one of the things that, that is just like really uh, speaks to me. You know, like if I want to live in light of heaven, then I need to delight purely in Christ, not in accomplishment, not in, not in, 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 in what I've done or the awards or, or uh, accolades or any of that. But, but if I want to live in light of heaven where everybody's equal at the foot of the cross, then, then I just need to realize that my delight is purely in Christ. It's, it's being loved on the basis of what Christ has done for me, not on what I have done for God. It's, it's acting for the good of others instead of ourselves. It's a fundamental change of heart and it's a lifelong journey of putting those things into practice. This is what it means to live in light of heaven. Well, now's the time to come up for some fresh air. I recognize that your response and your reaction to this may be different. You may, you, on one point, you may say, that's interesting, I disagree. Some of you may... Uh, fundamentally disagree. Some of you may say, ooh, I'd like to learn more about that. Some of you may say, yes, yes, yes. Wherever you fall on that spectrum, one thing is for sure. A world is coming where people don't open fire in shopping malls and theaters. A world is coming where government isn't corrupted by personal agenda or where natural disasters uh, rampage on creation. A world is coming where death is just a memory and tears are no more, where swords will be beaten into plowshares, where the wolf and the lamb will be at peace with one another, and all of creation will declare the glory of the creator. A world is coming where the presence of God will be unveiled, and we will live with him forever. Whatever you think about what I've said today, may we place our hope firmly in the hope of heaven, and then may we go and live Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click Online Giving.